Section 15 of Fancies versus Fads. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. Fancies versus Fads by G. K. Chesterton. Section 15 false theory and the theater a theatrical manager recently insisted on introducing chinese labor into the theatrical profession he insisted on having real chinamen to take the parts of chinese servants and some actors seem to have resented it as i think very reasonably a distinguished actress who is clever enough to know better defended it on the ground that nothing must interfere with the perfection of a work of art I dispute the moral thesis in any case, and Nero would no doubt have urged it in defense of having real deaths in the amphitheater. I do not admit in any case that the artist can be entirely indifferent to hunger and unemployment any more than to lions or boiling oil. But, as a matter of fact, there is no need to raise the moral question because the case is equally strong in relation to the artistic question. I do not think that a Chinese character being represented by a Chinese actor is the finishing touch to the perfection of a work of art. I think it is the last and lowest phase of the vulgarity that is called realism. It is in the same style and taste as the triumphs on which I believe some actor-managers have prided themselves. The triumphs of having real silver for goblets or real jewels for crowns. That is not the spirit of a perfect artist, but rather of a purse-proud parvenu. The perfect artist would be he who could put on a crown of gilt wire or tinsel and make us feel he was a king. Moreover, if the principle is to be extended from properties to persons, it is not easy to see where the principle can stop. If we are now to insist on real Asians to act Chu Chin Chow, why not insist on real Venetians to act the Merchant of Venice? We did experiment recently, and I believe very successfully, in having the Jew acted by a real Jew. But I hardly think we should make it a rule that nobody must be allowed to act Shylock unless he can prove his racial right to call upon his father Abraham. Must the carriers of Macbeth and Macduff only be represented by men with names like Macpherson and McNabb? Must the Prince of Denmark always be in private life a Dane? Must we import a crowd of Greeks before we are allowed to act Trollius and Cressida, or a mob of real Egyptians to form the background of Antony and Cleopatra? Will it be necessary to kidnap an African gentleman out of Africa by the methods of the slave trade and force him into acting Othello? It was rather foolishly suggested at one time that our allies in Japan might be offended at the fantastic satire of the Mikado. As a matter of fact, the satire of the Mikado is not at all directed against Japanese things, but exclusively against English things. But I certainly think there might be some little ill-feeling in Japan if gangs of Japanese coolies were shipped across two continents merely in order to act in it. If once this singular rule be recognized, a dramatist will certainly be rather shy of introducing Zulus or Red Indians into his dramas. 
owing to the difficulty in securing appropriate dramatic talent. He will hesitate before making his heroine Eskimo. He will abandon his intention of seeking his heroine in the Sandwich Islands. If he were to insist on introducing real cannibals, it seems possible they might insist on introducing real cannibalism. This would be quite in the spirit of Nero and all the art critics of the Roman realism of the amphitheater. But surely it would be putting almost too perfect a finishing touch to the perfection of a work of art. That kind of finishing touch is a little too finishing. The irony grew more intense when the newspapers that had insisted on Chinamen because they could not help being Chinamen began to praise them with admiration and astonishment because they looked Chinese. This opens up a speculation so complex and contradictory that I do not propose to follow it, for I am interested here not in particular incident, but in the general idea. It will be a sufficient statement of the fundamental fact of all the arts if I say simply I do not believe in the resemblance. I do not believe that a Chinaman does look like a Chinaman. That is, I do not believe that any Chinaman will necessarily look like the Chinaman, the Chinaman in the imagination of the artist, and the interest of the crowd. We all know the fable of the man who imitated a pig, and his rival who was hooted by the crowd because he could only produce what was, in fact, the squeak of a real pig. The crowd was perfectly right. The crowd was a crowd of very penetrating and philosophical art critics. They had come there not to hear an ordinary pig, which they could hear by poking any ordinary pigsty. They had come to hear how the voice of the pig affects the immortal mind and spirit of man, what sort of satire he would make of it, what sort of fun he can get out of it, what sort of exaggeration he feels to be an exaggeration of its essence and not of its accidents. In other words, they had come to hear a squeak, but the sort of a squeak which expresses what a man thinks of a pig, not the vastly inferior squeak which only expresses what a pig thinks of a man. I have myself a poetical enthusiasm for pigs, and the paradise of my fancy is one where pigs have wings. But it is only men, especially wise men, who discuss whether pigs can fly. We have no particular proof that pigs ever discuss it. Therefore, the actor who imitated the quadruped may well have put into his squeak something of the pathetic cry of one longing for the wings of a dove. The quadruped himself might express no such sentiment. He might appear, and generally does appear, singularly unconscious of his own lack of feathers. But the same principle is true of things more dignified than the most dignified porker, though clad in the most superb plumage. If a vision of a stately Arab has risen in the imagination of an author who is an artist, he will be wise if he confides it to an actor who is also an artist. He will be much wiser to confide it to an actor than to an Arab. The actor, being a fellow countryman and a fellow artist, may bring out what the author thinks the Arab stands for, whereas the real Arab might be a particular individual who at that particular moment refused to stand for anything of the sort, or for anything at all. The principle is a general one, and I mean no respect to China in the porcine parallel, 
or in the figurative association of pigs and pigtails. But as a matter of fact, the argument is especially apt in the case of China, for I fear that China is chiefly interesting to most of us as the other end of the world. It is valued as something far off and therefore fantastical, like a kingdom in the clouds of sunrise. It is not the very real virtues of the Chinese tradition, its stoicism, its sense of honor, its ancient peasant cults that most people want to put into a play. It is the ordinary romantic feeling about something remote and extravagant, like the Martians or the Man in the Moon. It is perfectly reasonable to have that romantic feeling in moderation like other amusements, but it is not reasonable to expect the remote person to feel remote from himself or the man at the other end of the world not to feel it as this end. We must not ask the outlandish Oriental to feel outlandish, or a Chinaman to be astonished at being Chinese. If, therefore, the literary artist has a legitimate literary purpose of expressing the mysterious and alien atmosphere which China implies to him, he will probably do it much better with the aid of an actor who is not Chinese. Of course, I am not criticizing the particular details of the particular performance, of which I know little or nothing. I do not know the circumstances, and under the circumstances, for all I know, the experiment may have been very necessary or very successful. I merely protest against a theory of dramatic truth urged in defense of the dramatic experiment, which seems to me calculated to falsify the whole art of the drama. It is founded on exactly the same fallacy as that of the infant in Stevenson's nursery rhyme, who thought that the Japanese children must suffer from homesickness through always being abroad in Japan. This brings us very near to an odd and rather threadbare theatrical controversy about whether staging should be simple or elaborate. I do not mean to begin that argument all over again. What is really wanted is not so much the simple stage manager as the simple spectator. In a very real sense, what is wanted is the simple critic, who would be, in truth, the most subtle critic. The healthy human instincts in these things are at least as much spoiled by sophistication in the stalls as by elaboration on the stage. A really simple mind would enjoy a simple scene, and also a gorgeous scene. A popular instinct to be found in all folklore would know well enough when the one or the other was appropriate. But what is involved here is not the whole of that sophistication, but only one particular sophistry. And against that sophistry we may well pause to protest. It is the critical fallacy of cutting off a real donkey's head to put it on bottom the weaver. When the head is symbolical, and in that case more appropriate to the critic than the actor. End of section 15. Recording by Tom Mack.